Gentlemen, welcome to the 137th meeting of the Civil War Roundtable. Your moderator for this meeting will be our distinguished secretary, the editor of Grant's Memoirs, the co-author of As Luck Would Have It, the associate editor of the American People's Encyclopedia, one of our long-time members of the Roundtable, authority on almost anything that we don't happen to know, and the author of the illuminating notices that each month is delivered in your mailbox. Gentlemen, I am happy to present E.B. Pete Long. Thank you, Ralph. The grand turnout, and I think that this uh, club is a proper atmosphere to discuss Jackson in 1862. I don't know quite why it's a proper atmosphere, but it seems like it at any rate. <coughs> we are very grateful tonight to have these lovely maps. Uh, they are made possible through generosity of Mr. Monroe Cockrell, who made them available to us. I doubt if there's anybody in this room that's going to say that General Jackson was not a great soldier. No one's going to dispute that. In less than two years, this unknown man carved a really never-to-be-forgotten career. He created legends. He made the name of a valley world famous. He earned the admiration of his man and his foes. He became today what he is today, a symbol of the American fighting man at his best. And of these two years, only about one year is most memorable. From spring of 1862 to that day at Chancellorsville in 1863. Tonight, it is that period of 62, the time of the valley, the seven days, Cedar Mountain, Second Bull Run, Antietam, that we are concerned with. Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville are really another facet of this great career. We want to honor General Jackson, but that doesn't mean loud-sounding eulogistic praises. It means an examination of his actions and of those of his men. It means the recreation as much as possible of his times. It means, with our gift of hindsight, seeing and realizing his faults. This is our aim, along with giving you, the members of this roundtable, a chance to really participate in the true spirit of the group. We are fortunate to have four members with us tonight who know General Jackson, who have been with him, so to speak, on his battlefield. To lead off this discussion, I think of no one more appropriate than Monroe Cockrell, past president of the roundtable, longtime student of the Confederacy, of the Civil War, and particularly of Jackson. Gentlemen and fellow students, I have only 15 minutes, so this has to be pretty brief and it has to be written read on that account. <clears throat> Can you hear me back there? Pull this thing down a little bit. Each of you has before you a print of uh, Jackson's campaign. What I have to say will be easily picked up on those maps. 
because I deal only with the major events in the Shenandoah Valley. In November 1861, early this month, Major General Jackson established his headquarters at Winchester, Virginia. The Federals at that time held all of the state of north of the Great Canova, west of the Alleghenies, and nearby they held Romney, 40 miles to the west of Winchester, <coughs> and Bath, 40 miles to the north. And the north bank of the Potomac was under their complete control, and the B&O Railroad was open <coughs> from Baltimore to Harper's Ferry. Can you hear me now? Back in the back. By the end of December 1861, Federal General Banks had 16,000 men at Frederick, Maryland. Rosecrans had 25,000 in the Department of West Virginia <coughs> and was concentrating slowly along the B&O with the intent of suddenly swooping down on Jackson and destroying him because of his small number. That time he had between eight and 9,000. Two-thirds of that command was lowering. <clears throat> January the 1st, Jackson moved in the dead of winter against Bass and Romney and drove the Federals back across the Potomac. All of you are familiar with the hardships of that winter march, the subsequent grumblings and criticisms which led to Jackson's resignation, its withdrawal, and his continuation in the service. The result was not appreciated or understood at the time. But there is no doubt that the federal plans for the winter campaign against uh, Jackson at Winchester were broken up, and the Confederate failure of operations westward from Stanton was counteracted. It had been pretty bad to the west of Stanton. The remainder of the winter was unoccupied except in uh, routine drilling, whipping men into the line, and similar types of endeavor. On March the 7th, the Confederates uh, abandoned Centerville, which left Jackson with about 4,000 men, isolated in the valley, if you please. Jackson was approaching Winchester with some 20,000 men, so he easily flanked Jackson out of Winchester, who slowly retreated up the valley and stopped between Woodstock and Mount Jackson. He was followed with she by shields with some 11 to 12,000 men. March the 17th, McClellan's Peninsula Movement began, and Banks' main army was transferred to cover the approaches to Washington. When Jackson learned of this, he immediately turned back, joined his rear guard of cavalry under Ashley, and boldly attempted to turn Shields' right flank at Kernstown on March the 23rd, 1862, Kernstown being about three miles south of Winchester. Result, Jackson with some 3,500 men was severely defeated by Shields and his 6,000 on the field of battle. But the federal chain reaction was entirely different. McDowell, 37,000 strong, was held at Manassas. Blinker's 9,000 was ordered to Strasburg and West Virginia, thereby, thereby depriving McClellan of some 46,000 men of the reinforcement previously promised him. Mr. Lincoln realized that Jackson had to be driven from the valley. He was too close to Washington. <coughs> <coughs> 
The next three weeks saw very little action. Jackson, slowly followed by Banks, retreated to Mount Jackson, as you will find on the mountain, some 25 miles further down, where Jackson stopped to control the pass at Luray, and Banks stopped short at Woodstock. At Woodstock, Banks' mental troubles began. He was far away from Winchester. His fighting force was being constantly reduced to protect his supplies and transport, while Jackson, at Luray, through the pass, and screened by the Massanuttons could strike Banks in his rear and cut him off from Winchester. <clears throat> it took Banks some time to make up his mind what to do. He finally moved on April the 17th and occupied Newmarket, and Jackson fell back to Harrisonburg. And there, instead of moving towards Stanton, up the valley in the conventional way, he turned left to Conrad's store at Elk Run Valley, where he was lost for 10 days until April 30th. Here is the situation on that date. Banks was at Harrisonburg with 20,000 men. Fremont was coming up the valley with 10,000 men to support Banks. Banks supported, uh, Banks faced Jackson, who was in Elk Run Valley with 6,000 men. And behind Jackson, and near Gordonsville, was the Confederate General Ewell with 8,000 men. Now west of Stanton was Johnson, the Confederate General, with 3,500, about seven miles west. And he was faced by <coughs> Schenck with 3,300 men at Franklin, and by Milroy with 3,500, Milroy being somewhat closer. On April the 30th, with that set up on the checkerboard, Jackson called up Ewell to Elk Run Valley, and then he, Jackson, starting in a quagmire of rain and mud, laboriously moved to Meacham Station on the railroad. He took the cars to Stanton, where he rested for two days and waited for his artillery to catch up with him by road. Then moving northwest and picking up Johnson on the way, he was attacked by Schenck and Milroy at McDowell on May the 8th. That's the long thumb sticking out to the far left on your map. The result was that Jackson with 9,500 defeated the Federals with some 6,800. Nothing particularly remarkable about that. Now while these things were hurriedly happening, Washington believed that Jackson was headed for Richmond. So McDowell was held back at Falmouth near Fredericksburg. Jackson followed the retreating Federals as far as Franklin, where they united with Fremont and were stopped really, almost stopped completely by the forest fires that the Federals had started. So Jackson gave up the chase, turned back towards Stanton, and rested first at Mount Solon and then at Newmarket on May the 20th. <coughs> When Washington learned that Jackson was off somewhere in West Virginia, little attention was paid to him. And Shields, with his 12,000, were detached from Banks and sent to McDowell near Falmouth. Banks, to protect Winchester, fell back with his remaining 8,000 and fortified Strasburg. In the meantime, Lee suggested to Jackson that he speedily move against Banks, and if he were successful, to create the impression 
that he had designs against Washington. The idea was to create fear in Lincoln's mind for the safety of his capital. And secondarily, the idea was to further deprive McClellan of his promised reinforcement. It had a double-barrel value. Jackson moved promptly to New Market, where Ewell united with him, and the Confederate Army now 17,000 strong, instead of marching down the valley towards Strasburg, rapidly moved down on the east side of the Massanuttons and camped May the 22nd, some 10 miles south of Front Royal, which was held by Kenley and a 1,000 men to protect Banks' rear and flank. The result, on May the 23rd at Front Royal, Jackson surprised and ran over Kenley and his thousand men, even though federal troops were all around him. Banks, to the very end of that day, adhered to his belief that it was only a raid and that Jackson would not dare to place his entire army between him and McDowell. The following day, May 24th, Jackson's army had traveled something over 100 miles since the battle <clears throat> at McDowell. He divided his weary army and swiftly struck at Strasburg, Middletown, Newton, Kerntown, and other places in the Valley Pike toward Winchester. By noon, the Pike was the scene of <clears throat> terrible disaster the wildest confusion among the federal troops. Jackson's troops were scattered among these various spots and falling out from exhaustion. But he pressed on until nearly dawn the following day when he was in sight of Winchester. The result of the battle was on May the 25th, Banks drove Jackson out of Winchester and the remnants of his army were across the Potomac by midnight of that day. Jackson's cavalry under Ashby had failed him. Two hours were lost before they took up the chase, and that margin of time is what saved Banks from complete destruction. Jackson had struck a deadly blow. Regardless of Banks' fine report to Washington, everybody knew better. Washington was electrified. Frantic calls were issued for more troops to save the capital. McDowell scattered 40,000 just started to cross the Rappahannock to go to McClellan, were halted. Other troops were ordered to support Banks, and McClellan, now near, near Richmond, was told to do something to get off the pot. Following these orders, as a result of the <coughs> driving Banks out of Winchester, Jackson moved to Halltown to threaten an invasion of Maryland. <clears throat> he refused the easy chance to cap capture Harper's Ferry and then turned back and made camp at Strasburg for the night of May 31st, where all of his forces were united, were united by June the 1st. Now, troops were coming from the southwest and from the east to converge against Jackson. Some nearly three times the numbers he had. I'm referring now to Fremont with his augmented number and McDowell. By the night of May the 31st, Fremont hurrying from Franklin was within six miles west of Strasburg 
and Shields, leading the advance of McDowell's 20,000, occupied Front Royal to the east. Both were bewildered by Jackson's swift marches. And while they hesitated, Jackson with his united army, encumbered by prisoners, passed safely between the converging federal armies. The result, between May 22nd and June the 1st, Jackson had routed a force of some 12,000, had threatened the North with invasion, had drawn off McDowell from Fredericksburg, and had captured all the supplies at Front Royal, Winchester, and Martinsburg, and on top of that had escaped with all of his prisoners. Then followed five days of masterly retreat, which landed Jackson at Cross Keys by the night of June the 5th. And that water Fremont had energetic pursued him up the Valley Pike, while Shields from Front Royal was heading for the gap at Luray and the bridges beyond at Conrad's store and Port Republic. Jackson accurately divined the federal plan and got their fustus and burned the two bridges, and thereby isolating Shields from Fremont. All this time, Ashby was retarding Fremont on the Valley Pike, but during the fight near Harrisonburg on June the 6th, Ashby was killed. On that same day, Shields was told that Jackson was retreating, so he determined to move in for the kill. Even though his forces were strung out for 25 miles between Luray and Conrad's store and separated from Fremont at Harrisonburg. This was the night of June the 7th while Ewell was at Cross Keys and Jackson's division was near Port Republic. In a couple of marches, the Federals would be united, so Jackson decided to deal separately with them, first with Shields while holding Fremont off across the Shenandoah. Fremont Unaware of the exact location of Shields, on the other side of the Massanutten, of course, advanced with his 12,000 and struck Ewell's 6,000 at Cross Keys on June the 8th. Ewell's stout resistance, with men at the right place at the right time, befuddled Fremont. His attack was made by only five regiments. Yes, the others stood by, 19 of them. The result was that Fremont was defeated by an inferior foe and left cowering on the defensive when night fell. Jackson <coughs> was four miles to the rear at Port Republic, heard the firing across the keys, so he mounted his horse and crossed the bridge over the South River when he suddenly heard firing nearer him. By good fortune, a messenger quickly arrived and brought the news that Shields' advanced brigade was fording the South River. So Jackson dashed back across and recrossed the bridge and barely escaped capture. Some of his staff were captured. The Federals were quickly routed, and their hurried flight showed Jackson that Shields' main body was not up. So he sent two brigades to Ewell and rode to that scene of action, but he took care to protect that bridge for use another day. During the night of June the 8th, Jackson conceived the audacious plan of fighting two battles the next day. <clears throat> First against Shields, and then against Fremont, chaotic 
generalship. June the 9th, at early dawn, Jackson left a skeleton force under Ewell to hold Fremont in check, but he himself crossed to the South Fork and attacked a federal force of two brigades, about 4,000, with a few less in number. The federal position at Port Republic was strong, and it was stubbornly defended by able fighters. There's no doubt about that. So Jackson, after suffering heavy losses, recalled all his troops facing Fremont and set fire to the bridge. He either had to win or get licked then, sure enough. His augmented force of three shrunken brigades then cut to pieces what remained of the two federal brigades. Fremont reached the burning bridge too late. His own graphic report tells the story of his own timidity. Confederate cavalry followed as far as Conrad's store and then quit when they ran into Shields and his other two brigades that were not yet up. By midnight, Jackson's, Jackson's troops had gathered at Brown's Gap in direct communication with, with Richmond. The result, both Freeman and, Schum and Shields had been defeated and both retreated down the valley. The pursuit of Jackson had come to an end. In the larger picture, McDowell's corps had been lured westward from Fredericksburg at the time he was about to join McClellan and disposed of by Jackson's brilliant maneuvers, his swift marches, his daring, and his originality of execution. While Banks, Fremont, and McDowell's broken forces were being gathered to cover Washington, Jackson was again on the move to join Lee at Richmond in a great series of battles called the Seven Days, which resulted in the defeat of McClellan and the second drive on to Richmond. I thank you. Thank you, Monroe. South has a new hero to replace Beauregard. Lee isn't quite in the picture yet. His name is Tom Fool Jackson. And for the next step in this year of decision for Jackson, we will hear from Kenneth M. McIntyre, another past president of the Civil War Roundtable, an airline official, a man who spent some of his student days in Virginia, even, uh, studying these campaigns and has been back many times since. The seven days with a slight reference to Cedar Mountain and Manassas with Kenneth McIntyre. As Monroe Cockrell has told you, gentlemen, Jackson approached a new chapter in his life, a new chapter in his career. A few days after the Battle of Port Republic, Valley Army bivouacked, as Monroe has said, at the mouth of Brown's Gap in the Blue Ridge Mountains. On the 12th of June, Jackson recrossed the South Branch and encamped several miles below Port Republic at a place called Myers Gap. On the 15th of June, General Whiting was sent up from Richmond by General Lee as an additional part to the Army of the Valley. 
And he arrived at Stanton with Laws and Hood's brigades and part of Lawton's. On the 16th, General Whiting appeared at headquarters and had an interview with General Jackson, who later gave orders to have the troops move at early dawn. And he himself, Jackson, started for Stanton with Whiting. There seems to be developing something there between Whiting and Jackson that might give us a clue to some of the idiosyncrasies of Jackson. He did not apparently want to have Whiting there, or if he did, he wanted Whiting to be sure he knew where he belonged as far as the Army of the Valley was concerned. <clears throat> Shortly after that, he left Whiting and with Colonel Mumford proceeded to Mount Crawford. Now, gentlemen, that is the link I would like to plant with you in bringing the Valley Campaign up to the movement of the troops east. May I, just before you would get into that area, say this. As most of you know, I'm sure, but forgive me for repeating it, the situation in the peninsula below Richmond was serious. It looked like that any day McClellan wanted to move in on Richmond and take the city was, was something that could be expected and was at his, as he desired. Certainly, uh, we know that under different circumstances and possibly with a different commander, McClellan than McClellan, that very thing might have already happened. Lee knew this. Lee knew he had to get somebody in there to assist him in the counteroffensive which he was planning. And he had watched with great admiration the ability and the skill that Jackson had indicated in his Valley Campaign. It fitted well into his, into his overall plan, and he was going to make the most of it. It was there on the 17th of June that Jackson received a letter from Lee in Richmond ordering him to unite with him at Richmond. However, gentlemen, and it shows a very wonderful character, maybe a weakness in General Lee, if you agree with me, and so on. In other words, he had the highest respect for Jackson, but he also wanted to let Jackson know that he was to ideas, his plans were to be considered also. At daylight on the 17th, the Army of the Valley was in motion again. It was a tired army, exhausted, but a victorious army. And on its way, it moved on eastward. Column crossed the Blue Ridge at Jamin's and Rockfish Gaps. I don't know, Monroe, whether they're shown on your map here. They probably are. I see Rockfish. I didn't find Jamin's. But nevertheless, there are two gaps in the mountains there. And they moved in through those two gaps. And on the 18th, they once again, the two columns met at a place called Meacham's River. That's on the Virginia Central Railroad. And they boarded the trains there for the east. On Saturday the 20th of June, the advance guard of the Valley Army was at Gordonsville. All day Sunday the Army remained at Gordonsville and was inactive. This too, gentlemen, is something that's rather interesting than the man, and I'm talking about Jackson, of course, character. There were some days he fought on Sunday and some days he didn't fight. And at this particular time, this important point, 
to me at least, was that he could have moved his troops. But they were exhausted, and he decided to let them stand there all day Sunday, inactive. He, of course, had gone on to Frederick's Hall and stayed there, I believe, at the Harris home and uh, as a guest. And peculiar enough, I think the story goes something like this. He was asked if he uh, would be ready for a discussion with his generals in the morning, and they were ready for him, but he was gone. He had gone to Richmond to meet Lee and go into the huddle, so to speak, with the various division commanders of the Army of Northern Virginia. On Monday, the Army moved out toward Fredericks Hall, although the column strung out for a distance of 15 to 20 miles to the west. It was hard moving. On Tuesday, Jackson was at Beaver Dam Depot on the Virginia Central. It developed that Jackson had left Fredericks Hall, as I've indicated to you, at 1 a.m. Sunday night for Richmond and his, his subsequent meeting with Lee. The next morning, on Wednesday, June 25th, the Army continued its march to Ashland, where they arrived late in the afternoon and went into bivouac at that village on the railroad. The same day, Major Jasper Whiting joined Jackson for staff duty and, for, and to act as a guide. And he was very familiar with that part of the country and his services were sorely needed. It's amazing for us now to sit here with an excellent map in front of us and to know the maps that have been developed through the years of the on these campaigns that here was a commander of Virginian moving across into a country where he was entirely uh, lost, you might say. He did not know his way around. There were very few maps available. The maps that were available were very poor. And there's one other thing, gentlemen, I want you to consider as he moved across, because I think most of us will agree that he moved slowly. He moved a lot slower than he had when he was in the valley and during his campaigns there. But if any of you have been in Virginia, when the rain set in, it's something like being out in the Pacific, as many of you remember, when the rain set in out there in various places. It rained and rained and rained. The only thing in Virginia, he did, he did come up against an old enemy of many campaigns, not only on this continent, but in Europe, mud. And he was slowed down by mud on all sides. That, I think, is a factor that we must consider in considering the delay that resulted. Early on the morning of the 26th of June, the Army under Jackson moved from Ashland in the general direction of Hanover Courthouse and Hundley Corners. You can see that on the map here. It's a road that's running straight up from Richmond. It's a small, narrow road. It still is. Actually, uh, the whole area there is, remains just about the way it did in June of 1862. Rough, rugged, heavily uh, undergrowth over the land, uh, heavily uh, wooded, I should say, uh, tangled woods, streams, streams all over the place. And with the rain that was pouring down, they were at their, <clears throat> at their highest point, certainly, in those days in June. On the 26th, General Hill and General Longstreet opened the seven-day battle, you might say, at Mechanicsville. All the night of the 26th, the Valley troops laid bivouacked at Hundley's Corners, inactive. They took no part in the initial engagements as originally planned. And I might say <clears throat> that Lee's plan was this. 
he felt that if he left McGrutter and Huger in the trenches before Richmond and moved the bulk of his army, Longstreet's division, A.P. Hills, D.H. Hills, moved them to the right flank of the Union Army, that he could, moving down from the north, of the Union Army, that he could, moving down from the north, from Hanover Courthouse, and that was Jackson's really his jump-off point to a large extent, moving down to Cold Harbor, he could cut back and roll back the right flank of McClellan's army and therefore throw them into a demoralized state. And one important fact would be that it would be on the north side of the Chickahominy River. Now that meant that McClellan's army would be divided. He could defeat that area up there, throw them back on the Chickahominy. Those that got across, got across all right, but actually the, the bulk of them would be between the flanking movement and the frontal attack, which he was planning to have both McGregor and Huger develop as the right flanking attack or the left flank on the Confederate Army attack started to develop. It was a beautiful, beautiful idea. It's, if it had uh, <clears throat> worked perfectly, it probably would have gone down as one of the great maneuvers of, of history. But timing was important. The criticism of Jackson at this point for failing to cooperate with A.P. Hill and Longstreet can be answered as follows. And I say fail to cooperate. It was not exactly that, gentlemen. You can imagine yourself in the position of A.P. Hill and Longstreet facing a, a very potent force in front of them, certainly. If you can imagine them waiting for the, the signal from Jackson to General Branch and on down to A.P. Hill, if you can think of that waiting there for that kickoff, for that jump-off movement or signal, then you can see why finally A.P. Hill, and he was an impetuous type of individual, why he was anxious to get going. He felt that every hour he lost meant possibly the final outcome of the battle. And to a degree, he was right. Jackson, not knowing completely all of this, although he had been at the meeting with Lee, and he knew what the plan in general was, had, I believe, in all sincerity, tried to bring his troops along as fast as he could. As is true so often in pivotal movements of the kind that was developing here, it was Jackson had the key to the situation. It was up to him to develop the move and to work in in perfect timing with Hill and with uh, Branch and actually with Longstreet because it was a, it was a swing around on the Confederate left, turning back the right, as I'm sure all of us realize and can see. But I wanted to get that point over because I think it's important that Jackson's timing, I think someone before the evening's over will say it was definitely off. But I want to say this, Jackson should not have been assigned the extremely hazardous pivotal duty on the, 20, on the 26th. He knew nothing about the country through which his army was expected to move. He'd never been there before so far as 
I could determine, certainly not as a army commander. He had not had time enough to take his bearings and learn the topography of the area. The Army of the Valley had been marching and fighting since early spring and was completely exhausted. And supplies, so important to a moving army, were not coming up due to the impassable roads and at no time had been able to keep pace with the troops. On the morning of the 27th, Jackson moved his troops forward cautiously and slowly until a junction with troops of A.P. Hill was made. The plan was to have Jackson move in on A.P. Hill's left flank. Shortly after D.H. Hill reported to Jackson and placed his division under his, Jackson's command. The Battle of Gaines Mill, and I should actually, before we get to the Battle of Gaines Mill, I would like to say that there was a very important it's more than a skirmish because there was a very uh, serious loss of life at uh, Ellison's Mill. This was, Ellison's Mill is a stone's throw really from Mechanicsville. And after A.P. Hill had crossed the Chickahominy, he moved in and he threw his troops against the Union lines at Ellison's Mill and he was given a rough handling all the way through. He should have waited and I think that will always go down against A.P. Hill and his uh, desire to develop an attack before everything was ready. Ellison's Mill is important because it was the first real contact that the Army of Northern Virginia had had with McClellan in the opening of the Seven Days Battle. Moving on to Gaines Mill, or sometimes referred to as Cold Harbor, the plan there was to have Jackson come in with D.H. Hill on his left flank, A.P. Hill on his right, and Longstreet over along the north bank of the Chickahominy, driving a wedge in toward the town or the little village. It's really not a town, it's a crossroad town of Cold Harbor and right alongside of Gaines Mill, as indicated here on the map. There's just an old mill there on the river, and it's famous because it was the junction or the starting of this terrific battle fought at, uh, at uh, Cold Harbor. I like to think it was Cold Harbor or because Cold Harbor seems to me to be a, an area that is, will go down in our history as a very, very bloody area of the fighting in Virginia. We can think later in 64 on the Second Battle of of Cold Harbor, and I can't help but wonder the, a little bit what would be the situation if Jackson had been there in two, year later, two years later in 1864. However, <clears throat> I want to get across this point, that the Army of Northern Virginia, with all their dash, with all their energy, and with everything that they had thrown in at the beginning of crossing the Chickahominy at Mechanicsville, moving across Ellerson's Mill and on up toward Gaines Mill and Cold Harbor, was still had a tough fight ahead of them, and in fact the toughest. They fought well at Gaines Mill, and they nearly were beaten. The Union troops were very put up a very stubborn resistance. Some of us who were down there a few years ago and walked over the fields there near the Watt House and could picture Longstreet's division troops coming up over the plowed field from the woods in the background and then walking over through Boatsway or Boson Swamp 
I think some of the people down there call it Boatswain, but I know that it's properly called Boatswain Swamp. Moving in up there through that tangled underbrush and coming up to the watch house, you can see that the center of Porter's command was surrounded on the, by, by the finest troops that the Confederate Army could gather together, the finest commanders. They had the flower of the Confederacy there in an area of approximately five or six miles surrounding that particular spot. And they were backed up to the Chickahominy, which was just a sort of a, well, a stone throw off to their left. Actually, the, excuse me, how's the time going? Thank you. I want to get through the seven days. Uh, actually, the uh, outstanding fact about, um, in my reading and going over this particular battle or series of battles, it seems to me that here at Gaines Mill or Cold Harbor, the Federal Army could have really defeated Lee and, and really destroyed him because he was in a position there to have been thrown back and huddled together as, the, as they were, not timing their operation as completely as he had hoped to. Jackson coming in again a little late, uh, Longstreet coming in on the right, on the, right, on, on the Confederate right flank not knowing what was ahead of them, suffering terrible losses there on the frontal attack in the area at Gaines Mill and Bolson Swamp. They were stopped, and they really didn't have too much opportunity to do very much about it except just fight on. But fortunately for Jackson and Lee and the Hills and Longstreet, McClellan decided to fall back, and as a result, Porter brought his troops, re retreated back on the area of the Great uh, Grapevine Bridge. Cold Harbor was fought on the 28th for under very trying circumstances due to the swampy and rough terrain of the country around there and particularly around Gaines Mill. This was particularly true of the center of the line defended by General Fitzjohn Porter who commanded the Union troops north of Chickahominy. <coughs> On Jackson's left flank was D.H. Hill, who also acted as a support for Jackson's army in moving in from the crossroads at Cold Harbor. Hard fighting in the area of Boston Swamp and the area between the Watt House and the road leading from Gaines Mill held the result of the battle in uncertainty throughout the day. It might be added that Jackson had sent Ewell with his brigade to the White House on the Pamunkey, where they were remaining to stationary for the rest of the Corps, rest of the time during the 28th and 29th. Now, there again, gentlemen, is, a, is an indication of where Jackson kept his troops for the most part inactive for the better part of two days, which was the June 28th and 29th. The failure to get these fine veteran troops into action on these two days resulted in the slipping away of McClellan's troops over the Grapevine Bridge from the north to the south side of the Chickahominy. This was a serious delay in view of the fact that Lee's plan was to hold McClellan's army at Fraser's Farm on the 30th. Rather short but sanguinary battle took place on Fraser's farm between the advance guard of Lee's army and the rear guard of McClellan's. Where this could have been a deciding point, in fact it was the critical point in the seven days fighting, it resulted only in slightly delaying the general movement of the Union army in its retreat to Harrison's Landing on the James River. 
Jackson has been criticized for his failure to get Ewell's division into action on the 28th and 29th. Naturally, the fact that the ground was unknown to Jackson, most of it being a heavily tangled, swampy nature, flooded by recent rains, plus the terrible loss of life that had been incurred by the Confederate Army, probably caused confusion and delay. Whatever it was, we know that Lee had lost his great opportunity to destroy the Army of the Potomac in the swamp and forest lands below Richmond. Lee's plan for the Battle of Fraser's Farm on the 30th was brilliantly planned, and if it had been as well ex executed, there seems little doubt but that it would have been fatal to McClellan and the end of the Peninsula Campaign in 1862. The Army of the Potomac moved down from Fraser's Farm on the Quaker Road, <coughs> Quaker Road to Malvern Hill. This is rather a high plateau overlooking the James River and having rather steep precipitous sides rising to the north and west. In this position, McClellan decided to make his final stand against the Army of Northern Virginia. His placing of the Union guns plus a strong natural position made frontal assault impractical and suicidal. Nevertheless, Lee decided he must close in and defeat his adversary at all costs. The costs were high. McClellan held his ground and Lee was forced to fall back because of sheer loss in manpower. The Confederate Army had met its match and McClellan's Army of the Potomac fought with its back to the James River as it had never fought before. On June July 1st, was the Battle of Malvern Hill. It was a terrible battle, needless to say. Lee has often said that he wished he had never ordered the assault at Malvern Hill, and he can well say that because of the fact that the losses were probably as great as any part of his campaign, either that year or the, during the next two. He had lost his opportunity to destroy the Army of the Potomac, but he had defeated his adversary through the seven days fighting before Richmond. He had raised the siege of Richmond, and it proved the superiority of his division commanders over those of the Army of the Potomac. While it is true that Jackson's delay in joining with A.P. Hill and Branch at Beaver Dam Creek caused a serious failure in Lee's original plan, it appears significant, but both Hill and Branch were either ill-advised or premature in their timing. As such, as was found in the swamps along the Chickahominy, it is not practical to hinge the results on too close timing. The assault of Jackson's Valley Army at Gaines Mill and Cold Harbor perhaps did more to ensure victory than any other single act. The experience gained in the campaigns at Winchester and Kernstown, Port Republic, gave Jackson's men the confidence and the dash that were so necessary when they were thrown in the breach to the left of A.P. Hill at Cold Harbor. Jackson himself seemed to find new power in the directions and placing of his divisions. The fact that he did not show the vigor and drive that were characteristic of the Valley Campaign was due, in my opinion, at least in part, to the exhausted condition of the man as well as the troops he commanded. Considering all the facts, he was fortunate in bringing his army from the valley into Lee's overall plan of operation to the extent that he did. I realize that I've taken too long. I got stuck in the swamp just like Jackson did. <coughs> but on the other hand, I, I feel that rather than go on into a cedar run and go into Second Manassas, I would like to take that up later if any, when we get to the contacts and questions. Thank you, Ken. That was an able defense of the seven days, and I'm sure material for discussion. Now, I know the campaign's getting a little rough, so if any of you would like to take your coats off, go right ahead. Sure, it doesn't matter. Now then, Jackson's career. <coughs> was uh, continuing and continuing with victories. 
uh, through the uh, controversial Cedar Mountain uh, or Slaughter Mountain campaign to that uh, magnificent movement in the Second Manassas where they got all the supplies. And then they headed north. And for that, we have Lloyd Miller, who has gone with them, so to speak, who, um, although he loves his Franklin, he knows his Antietam. And here we have past president of the Civil War Roundtable, Lloyd Miller. I would like nothing better than to uh, fight the Battle of Sharpsburg, but it can't be done in the time I have. And the main purpose of this panel talk is to point out the highlights of Stonewall Jackson and try to prove the point that he was the general that some of us contend he was, and then to have a good heated discussion from everybody. Um, I'm sorry that we didn't carry on the continuity but I'm sure that most of you men, all of you men, know Slaughter Mountain and Second Manassas. What I'm going to do is move on when Second Manassas was over and just read a little bit and talk a little bit and cut mine short so we can get into the arguments. Jackson moved these troops ahead of the Confederate Army September 162, collided with the Federal wing in a hard rainstorm and fought the Battle of Chantilly. General Branch led the assault troops, and when ammunition ran low, he advised Jackson that one of his regiments must retire because the ammo was wet from rain. Typical of Jackson, he said, my compliments to the Colonel so-and-so and tell him the enemy's ammo is just as wet as his. In that engagement, the Union lost Phil Kearney, and around 1,000 men, Jackson's loss was about half of that. September 2, the Federals sought shelter under the forts of Alexandria, and Jackson was ordered to cross the Potomac and invade Maryland. This was down his alley because Jackson, ever since first Manassas, wanted to invade the North. I think that's another facet of his character. He always wanted to do that. He was one of the few that didn't want to fight defensively. He wanted to fight offensively. With Stuart's cavalry forming an effective screen, the Corps got to White's Ferry on the 6th of September, and the men were soon on Maryland soil. September 7, Jackson occupied Frederick. Lee was worried about the 3,000 Federals at Martinsburg, mostly cavalry, and um, with troops at Winchester of 3,000, which later moved to Harper's Ferry, swelling that number of Federals to over 11,000. Uh, he just didn't want to move north on this invasion back of the South Mountain into Pennsylvania or wherever he was going to invade with that thorn in his side. And he decided to wipe Harper's Ferry out. On September 9, he issued his Special Orders 191. You all know that story. He figured that 25,000 men could wipe out Harper's Ferry, and I think his figuring of that number was correct, because that's just what it took. Uh, Longstreet, by the way, had refused command of this venture. He was against it. He didn't want to split the army. And again, you have Longstreet doing things he did all through his career, opposing Lee's opinion, not wanting to do this or do that. And here we have Stonewall Jackson, who wanted to invade farther north and not stop at Harper's Ferry, but like a good subordinate, he took the command willingly and did it successfully. He was to have McLaws, R.H. Anderson's, and J.G. Walker's divisions to augment his corps. September 10, on daybreak, the march started. Jackson was to invest the ferry from three sides, while the rest were to move to Hagerstown, Hagerstown, 25 miles away. 
Well behind this double screen of mountain ranges running north and south, the Catoctin and farther west-south mountains. The Federals were 30 miles east of the ferry and 45 miles southeast of Hagerstown at this same time. Jackson was very wily, again showing his cunning and all that sort of thing. All through the town he asked for maps for the north and he asked for instructions for roads to lead the idea with the civilians that he was going to move northward. Then when he moved out of Frederick on September 10th, he moved rapidly to the west through Turner's Gap to Middletown and camped within one mile of Boonesboro, 14 miles from Frederick on September 11th. September 12th, he took the direct road to Williamsport, forded the Potomac and headed southwest for Martinsburg. He wished to drive General White and his 3,000 troops there into Harper's Ferry and corral all of the Federals together. He divided his command into three parts to do this. On September 13, Jackson entered Martinsburg. This was the same time that a, cor a corporal and a sergeant from the 27th Indiana uh, camping in, just camping in Frederick found the three cigars wrapped up in Lee's General Order 191. This same day, he passed through Hall Town and hauled a mile north of that village throughout pickets to hold the roads which led south and west from Harper's Ferry to cut off the Federals. Meanwhile, McLaws moved to the heights north of Harper's Ferry and Walker to the mountain range east of that place. McLaws had only to contend with one brigade and two battalions on Maryland Heights. Walker had no opposition taking Luton Heights to the east. The ferry was completely surrounded. McClellan had only pushed forward Franklin's division of 20,000 men on the 13th and now moved his army to the west, feeling out Stuart's cavalry. The nearest Confederate infantry to the mountain passes were on the Maryland Heights and at Boonesboro. D.H. Hill was moved to South Mountain, and Longstreet was ordered from Hagerstown, 13 miles away, back to Boonesboro to support Hill, D.H. Hill. Jackson at night at Hall Town opened communications with McLaws and Walker, and they planned the attack for next morning. September 14, Jackson wanted to send flag of truce to move out civilians, but due to the heavy firing to the north of McLaws, which proved to be Franklin's Corps moving south through Crampton's Gap, uh, he decided to start to shell the town and attack. September 15th, on a Monday at 7.30 a.m., the garrison surrendered. Jackson lost 100 men. It was an artillery engagement plus his logistics and supreme generalship. 12,520 prisoners, 13,000 small arms, 75 pieces of artillery, and several hundred wagons. The Federal cavalry was the only thing commendable. They escaped during the night, headed north, winding up in Greencastle, Pennsylvania, 10 miles north of Hagerstown, after capturing General Longstreet's reserve ammo train of 40 wagons and 200 prisoners. Grimes Davis with the 8th New York Cavalry, his own, 12th Illinois, and some scattered men from the 1st Maryland and 7th Rhode Island, 1,300 in all, got away. At 8 a.m., Jackson reported capture to Lee. Lee was then falling back from South Mountain with D.H. Hill, Longstreet, and Stewart to Sharpsburg. Late that afternoon, Jackson with Walker and McLaws' division were ordered back to Lee without delay. Now, all through this campaign, haste, haste should have been the key word of McClellan. Everything that he did, every general that he had should have realized the importance of getting where they were going. But they waited till the next day. They waited for this. They waited for that. Not Stonewall. He marched at night. On the 14th, D.H. Hill had a rough time defending Turner's Gap as did Stewart's dismounted cavalry at Crampton's Gap, six miles south. 
Franklin attacked Crampton's Gap at noon. He should have attacked it the evening before. He should have started moving. At this time, the advance guard of the Federal Main Army had gained much ground at Turner's Gap. At 4 p.m., the general attack was made at Turner's Gap, and Longstreet, after a 13-mile hike, had supports for Hill by the evening. Hill, of course, was eventually forced off South Mountain, but that holding action was the time they needed. Franklin had faced Crampton's passes by 5 p.m., driving three brigades of Big Laws who came up to reinforce Stuart before him. McClellan's losses were 1791 to the right, Franklin 533 to left, a total of 2,324 men. McLaws and Mumford's cavalry of over 800 uh, had losses over 800, of which half were captured, and D.H. Hill lost 1,500 plus 1,100 prisoners, total of 3,400. So the Confederates lost 3,400 in that episode against the Federals 2324. 8,000 Confederates, however, held Turner's Gap against 30,000 of McClellan's 70 for a whole day. Longstreet thought that Lee should cross the Potomac at once when he got on to Sharpsburg. But Lee, learning that Jackson had taken Harper's Ferry and was on the way back to rejoin the army, decided to bring McClellan to a decisive battle. Lee had no more, t all told, than 45,000 men. You read the battle, you read the reports and the returns of these Confederate troops, and you know the story that many of them didn't believe they should invade the North, and they just dropped out and wouldn't fight until the army came back across the Potomac. Others straggled. The net result was that there were less than 45,000 men, and I want to have it proven different that Lee had all told. And he only had 15,000 in position on September 15th, when McClellan was moving up his 70,000 men, not to count Franklin's 20,000 over at Crampton's Gap. September 16, early in the morning, Jackson reached Sharpsburg with McLaws and Walker's divisions and had marched all night. None of these federal officers had shown such get-up or move. Jackson, of course, had left Ambrose P. Hill's division to parole the prisoners at Harper's Ferry and ship out the spoils of war, both north and south. McLaws had to cross at the ferry and follow Jackson for 25 miles because he was around the north, had to cross two rivers, while Walker had to cross the Shenandoah to the ferry and march 20 miles, while Jackson himself with Lawton's and Jones' divisions of 5,100 men marched 17 miles during the night. The day wore on and the Federals concentrated but only fighting late that evening to the north of Sharpsburg when Hooker's men for the First Corps moved across the Hagerstown Pike to get into position for their jump off near Praise Mill. McClellan had been in command of the left bank of the Antietam since the forenoon of the day before, but he moved slow, cautiously, getting up his reserves, and of course every minute that he wasted to get ready was just making Lee that much stronger. Lee then had concentrated all but 11,500 of his men. Jackson. He moved down to this hilly mountainous country, over these rivers, with all the obstructions. And he also moved with two divisions that were not his own, he was not familiar with, Lafayette, McLaws, and Walker. And he had them in three different positions, with no radio or anything between them, with just a few signal frags and what men could run or cavalry could get to them to give orders. He captured Harper's Ferry after marching 60 miles, all told, with these troops in three and a half days, and it was hot and dusty. And then that didn't count the 17 to 25 mile return back to Sharpsburg with those troops. I think it's commendable the work he did there in that short space of time, knowing that he was terribly hampering Lee's forces in case of a large frontal attack. 
Old man McClellan created three grand divisions. I've always thought this was humorous. With all of his divisions, a corps, I should say, he put Sumner with his second corps and General Mansfield's 12th corps, which had formerly been Banks, under Sumner is one wing. He took Franklin, who was down at, at this Crampton's Gap, with his 6th Corps and put Porter's 5th Corps of a lot of regular army troops under him. Burnside, who had just come up with the 9th Corps, Reno had just been killed and he had been put in command. He was put in command of his 9th Corps and Hooker's 1st Corps. And then for the layout of the battle at Sharpsburg, he's got Hooker around by the Potomac to the north to make the jump-off attack in the morning, supported by Mansfield's 12th Corps and a superior in charge of a grand army, Sumner standing by as a second reserve. Franklin was absent, so Porter was left to hold that grand section of the army in the center as a sort of a grand reserve, and that he proved to be all during that battle. He was reserve and didn't fight at all, and that probably had been the thing that would have cracked Lee's back if he had moved in. Old Burnside had the extreme left, had a tough proposition to handle down there for him, but he didn't have half of his grand division because Hooker was way around to the right. I find no instance where Stonewall Jackson as a subordinate or a leader was as screwy as this guy McClellan. <laughs> September the 17th, at the crack of dawn, the battle started. I'm not going into the battle at all. I'd love it. But we know that uh, as you look at the map, way up here to the north, with this map playing like this, Sharpsburg down here, Hagerstown up here, Hooker jumped off early in the morning coming down the Hagerstown Pike in a miller's farm into the cornfield and when help was needed, Sumner and Mansfield moved in from the northwest, and they fought in the east woods, and they fought in the cornfield, and they crossed the Hagertown Pike and into the, the, the west woods, and back and forth two or three towns up and down till men were hanging like scarecrows on the fence where they were shot, and it was a shambles. You know that story. Around 9 o'clock in the morning, way down to the south, Burnside was to cross and come up on the other flank of the Lee's army and Burnside fiddled around trying to look for a ford. They couldn't find the damn bridge. They couldn't find the ford back and forth. Half his army was gone. He didn't feel so hot anyway. But they did get some troops across in the early afternoon and shoved back a token force of Confederates and were beginning to make headway in the south toward Sharpsburg and almost got up to the town, of course, till 3 o'clock when Ambrose Power Hill came back from Ferry, from Harper's Ferry, and soon rolled that thing up. Terrible fighting was in the middle of the line down by the sunken road. I remember when Joe Eisendrath laid in it and I took movies of him. I often think of that, Joe. You don't know what was on that spot several years ago where you were laying. Anyway, out of 130,000 men on the ground, 21,000 in that one day had been killed or wounded, or 16% and 25,000 the Federals were hardly engaged. I think Jackson had an ideal frame of mind as a subordinate, as a general, in this Sharpsburg campaign. 
He proved that he could take orders from a superior and carry them out to its entirety. That's been questioned in the seven days. He showed ability to make difficult marches to Harper's Ferry, over 60 miles through all these mountains and rivers, and to handle troops not his own, and put them in a hard terrain and capture this Harper's Ferry with that vast amount of people in it. I think he showed good sense with his very strong type of character and personality and feeling against A.P. Hill to release him from arrest and let him fight his light division in this campaign. He returned his troops in time, and God knows they went through plenty of hiking and trouble down there taking the ferry and finding it and then getting back in time. And on the morning of the 17th, he fought his men excellently. He fought awful thin in spots, but he just had that integrity and that know-how to bring men where he needed them from to put them in the right place to save the day. And the poor old guy was sitting on his horse by noontime trying to figure out how he could get together a force of men from all these scattered commands to make an assault and attack in the afternoon. That's Stonewall Jackson. Another facet of him in this battle, that afternoon he wanted to break the Union right up, almost anchored on the Potomac. And while he was figuring out how to get these men together, a reconnaissance showed that the Federals were a little too strong and it was a little too tough a job. And he turned the idea down. An attack that had been planned for three o'clock did not come off. too strong and it was a little too tough a job and he turned the idea down an attack that had been planned for three o'clock did not come off Lee wanted to do it both armies laid on their arms all night and the next day Lee still wanted to find out if something couldn't be done to make an assault on the federal right with Stonewall Jackson's left and Jackson said he wanted a capable, ar capable artillery man to come and talk with him and of course, Stephen Dill Lee, then a colonel, later famous general, came up, surveyed the situation, and Lee asked him if he had 50 guns, if he could smash the Union right. <coughs> colonel Lee said, where could he get 50 guns? They only had 12 out of the 30 that he had the day before. Jackson said that General Lee had a few, he had a few, and he could get them together. And this colonel started off to start moving, uh, trying to make a hit, of course, with this Stonewall. And uh, Stonewall stopped him. He said, just a minute. I asked you a question. With 50 guns, can we crush the federal right? He didn't know just how to answer. He didn't want to get in Dutch. He didn't want to offend Jackson. But still, he went and made another look and made up his mind. He said, uh, not with the troops we have on hand. Jackson sent him back to General Lee to tell it, again showing that he wasn't rash when it got down to where the chips were down and it might be a wrong thing to do, he was willing to listen to somebody else. I think everything that he did at Sharpsburg proved him a great general in anybody's army.
As always. Come right in, General McClellan. Come right in. Here he is. <laughs> As always, it's a pleasure to fight a campaign with Lloyd Miller. Now we've built up a pretty good soldier here, pretty good general. We have an anchor man tonight, chairman of your trip committee, outstanding authority on Harper's Ferry, on the Valley, and on Jackson, Ollie Felton, who's going to try to poke a few holes in some of these things, build up some theories of his own, then we will have a short rebuttals and questions by these gentlemen, and then it's up to you. Gentlemen, we've heard much of movements, numbers, and possibly some theories. Let's see what really took place, what made this man work, how he worked, and what the possibilities with a slight error or a misconception of a march might have meant among his subordinates. To begin with, Without Richard Stoddard Ewell, the name Stonewall Jackson might never have emerged. If it had of, it wouldn't have been with the luster as we now know him, and it probably would have been somewhat later. Jackson's campaigns generally were on the offensive and involved the movement of more than one column. Everything had to be timed right and right in detail. All right, the things that bore most heavily on these were first his human relations, his strategy and tactics, and lastly, but by far the most important, the value of his subordinates. Now beginning with the valley, in the human relations department, let's say he was quite poor. And to amplify that, his treatment of Garnett, who almost without exception his own comrades condemned. His treatment of Ashby, where it was kept from open warfare, was not popular with Ashby, with Ashby's adherents, and with many of Jackson's own adherents. And had the thing that worked a little smoother, and they'd been a little more friendly, no doubt the cavalry would have been there and would have moved out after Banks at Winchester instead of escaping almost in their entirety, as Mr. Cockrell pointed out. All right, his human relations in the seven days through the Harper's Ferry campaign. Jackson is improving with experience. His conduct, let's say there, was fair. The notable exception was his treatment of A.P. Hill which, well, let's say a dog-in-the-manger attitude probably takes care of it as well as any other uh, phrase. Tolifero, or Tolliver as he's called, was very unpopular with Jackson due to his aligning himself along with uh, Loring at Romney the past winter. Loring, you know, and, and Tolliver got together, complained to the Secretary of War, pulled out of Romney, and left a very embarrassing situation when spring broke in 1862. On the improvement side in his human relations, we begin to see a little of it when we get to Harper's Ferry. Firstly, 
he took A.P. Hill out of arrest, or at least relieved it for the time being, which would have been unheard of a few months before. Then he actually became somewhat conversant with J.G. Walker, who was a newcomer with the Army. In fact, the two of them rode together and talked quite freely on their way from Harper's Ferry to Sharpsburg. And at Sharpsburg himself, the old boy became almost human. He left A.P. Hill, notwithstanding their recent difference, the honor of taking the surrender and taking care of the property, because the fellow was good. Then we find Hood, whose men were wet, hungry, and pretty well shot up from the deal on South Mountain. All right, Hood sent to Jackson for relief so his men might cook and get a little rest. Well, the Jackson of the Valley might have told him the grass was pretty good eating up that way, but instead of that, he relieved him, and Hood retired. Not very long, they had to come back, but at least he did show some spark there. In his strategy and tactics, in the valley, let's say he was fair, in parts brilliant and parts poor. And on the poor side, probably the worst of it was his bad march from Conrad's store to Port Republic that began on April the 30th. Douglas, well, who spoke rather plainly but certainly was not anti-Jackson, said that it would have been a very sad thing that had any of Jackson's opponents shown the dash of Jackson himself. He was in an exposed position took him two days to march 16 miles, and he could easily have been cut up and defeated right on the spot. And Henderson, who certainly spoke always for Jackson, simply recorded, it was a hard march through almost an impossible quagmire. During the seven days, Jackson was not Jackson. And I think Mr. McIntyre we're running short of time, has covered that quite adequately. Cedar Mountain. Douglas Southall Freeman entitles the chapter covering this, this battle, with Jackson fumbles at Cedar Mountain. He relapsed a bit there with considerably superior numbers. It wasn't a very creditable showing that he made against the Federal Army at Cedar Mountain. Second Manassas, well done. The lessons of yesterday are well remembered, and so far as I can see, there were no mistakes made. At Harper's Ferry, here we find Jackson at his best. The converging of three columns, one of them with a borrowed commander, another one with a man almost a stranger with the army, recently up from Richmond and shortly afterwards sent to the Army of the West, J.G. Walker. McLaws had by far the hardest part. He had to hold Crampton's gap in his rear. That, of course, fell. Down the extension of the mountain, he had to send the column to Weaverton to block access from that direction. Well, McLaws had to send Kershaw up Maryland Heights and drive the force off on top of the mountain. Well, that mountain, any of you who've seen it, it's a pretty good job to climb it without any of the encumbrance of arms or anybody shooting at you. 
However, it was done and done swiftly. And around on the Loudon side, J.G. Walker made a march, a good one. He got there on time, or nearly on time, even though he'd made a detour, I believe so he could parade his troops in front of the window of a young lady living down the valley. At Sharpsburg, on the field, as Mr. Miller's pointed out, he was excellent. However, he might have hastened McLaws along a little bit. And pardon me, Mr. Miller, McLaws did not march to Harper's Ferry with Stonewall Jackson. He arrived somewhat later. Now, the value of good subordinates, the bad ones, Loring and Tolliver. Now let's suppose that in the valley, he'd have had somebody like Chase Whiting or Tolliver in an exposed position where something had to be done and done quickly into a precise place. Or let's say across the, across the mountain, instead of Yule, we'd have had the sulking and openly disobedient Longstreet. Instead of marching and counter-marching, as, as was necessary, a Longstreet would have written back for more clear instructions or sat down waiting to be attacked on that side of the mountain. <coughs> now, not only as generals, but where he was sending couriers back and forth to detail the movements of these groups, for instance, the ride at Douglas took one night. 105 miles, as he puts it, the last 80 of it at the pace of a cavalry charge. Supposing any one of those couriers had failed to get a fresh mount, couldn't, didn't get to where they were supposed to, and Ewell had not moved correctly, the Valley Campaign would be written differently today had that occurred. At Cedar Mountain, Without Jubal Early, there would be many a red face. Early was the man, I would say, that's almost entirely responsible for what success they met at Cedar Mountain. At Second Manassas, without Maxie Gregg, who lost nearly half of his command, they might readily have been broken through before Longstreet got rolling to take off the pressure. And at Harper's Ferry, Again, it was A.P. Hill, although in disgrace, and the magnificent campaign of McLaws with a good deal to watch. Of course, McLaws was condemned for letting the Federal Cavalry get away. That might easily have been prevented by Jackson himself back on the other side of the Potomac. They were within hearing distance, and if we'd have paid a little more attention to that end of the line, it's doubtful if they'd have gotten away. Thank you. Thank you, Ollie. Well, I think we have some material. Uh, and I know there's other on the floor. Now we're ready for a real campaign. And first, I understand Monroe would like to answer some of those comments on Ashby and Garnett. And perhaps Lloyd here would have something to add on that uh, subject. Monroe? Now's the time to take off my coat. <laughs> yeah, now we're underway, boys. 
I'd like to answer the comments about Garnett. I'd like to answer the comments about Garnett and about Ashby. Let's look at the conditions of Jackson's army in 1861, when uh, 62, when Loring was uh, taken away from him, which constituted two thirds of his 9,000. You had an army that was made up of officers who got the jobs by votes, not by authority of the commander-in-chief or his recommendation. Jackson had to take them. You had volunteers. Many of them had no experience of any kind on earth. And it was that kind of a group that during that winter he tried to whip into shape. And he ran into a lot of stiff-necked officers who did not want this crazy Jackson leading those troops. No doubt about that in my mind. Jackson couldn't put every officer he had under arrest. He had enough of them to arrest uh, more than anybody else to think the entire campaign. Garnett was severely treated. I don't deny that for a second. But Garnett happened to be the one that Jackson made an example of on a basis that was fair enough. It isn't a bit different when I was a school teacher at Wentworth Military Academy, not a bit. And these boys kept heckling me when I was drawing things on the board in the class. A lot of wild kids from Oklahoma, and some of them are tougher than I ever dreamed boys could be, and they'd whine behind me and throw books at one another. <laughs> and that's the kind of an army and, and a lot of officers that Jackson had. And I finally said, if there's any more noise in my rear, somebody's going to get hit with this eraser. And they proceeded to find out. And I whirled and threw the eraser and hit a boy in the eye. And it laid his cheek open from here to here, some two inches. It was pretty severe, I grant you that. So was Garnett treated severely. But it stopped the racket. I never had a bit of trouble in two years in a single class, because I broke one of them in the beginning. Garnett and others would have broken Jackson. But Jackson hadn't followed a similar treatment in somewhere along the line. Now turning to Ashby, Ashby was a personal exploiter. He was held on wheels in a battle, there's no doubt about that. And he did a good job for Jackson, there's no doubt about that. But he did it as an independent because the Secretary of War, uh, Judah P. Benjamin, had given him an independent command and that in itself caused his trouble. That caused all kinds of trouble down at Vicksburg, too. When Lincoln was persuaded to give a fellow an independent command, he got all got the Union Army in all kinds of mess. Now, Ashby, when he got this independent, this command, this authority from Benjamin to organize an independent cavalry troop, was in a position to throw that in Jackson's face every time Jackson issued an order that involved Ashby and he didn't fail to do it. When the crucial time came to whip uh, Banks' army into complete destruction, where was Ashby? Ashby decided of his own motion, without regard to Jackson or anybody else that was there, that the Federals were going to retreat, retreat through Snickers Gap. So he wasn't at home when he was needed. The two hours were lost there, and Jackson and most of his men were off over on that other 
wild escapade, kind of like Stewart at Gettysburg. There were about 50 of Ashby's men, I think, that were there. Now, the other commander there, uh, I've forgotten his name in a minute, his cavalry, where were they? Well, they in Ashby's outfit, they were attached to you now I'm speaking of. They fell out and went into the business of capturing horses and food stuff and one thing or another, and they weren't around. When finally Jackson found out where they were, he issued orders for him to move. And the commander said, no, I can't go till I get orders from my immediate superior. And the time Jackson found him and got him to issue the order, well, the two hours had gone by. That's exactly what A.P. Stewart did at Chickamauga. Refused to move when Sorrell gave him the orders as chief of staff. And refused to move until he got the orders from his immediate superior. Again, at that time, uh, couple of hours were lost, and Sorrell got the order, and then uh, Stewart moved in promptly and did a good job of it. The result was it broke up the Union uh, outfit that were uh, causing so much trouble in that little spot. I submit, gentlemen, that when you take a disorganized mass, all brand new, all elected by votes in the majority of instances, all guilty to a large extent in the, certainly in the beginning of absenteeism. Read Castler and tell about how the boys went home and came back from time to time. There's a forthright account. It's typical. I submit that somebody had to be made an example of. It happened to fall on Garnett. It might have fallen on Lloyd Stewart or Lloyd Miller or Monroe Cockrell or Joe Eisenrath if he'd been in the same position. But after those things happened, that thing cleared up fast. And all of that business dried up. There will always be complaints about Jackson's secrecy. But what the hell difference does it make? They succeeded and they worked. So there's no real complaint about it at all. Now that human element that was spoken of here. Uh, Jackson had a lot of supporters in these armies. The hell of it was he didn't have enough supporters at Richmond in the political capital. Now, that's all it adds up to when you get through the shouting. He did not have the political support at the Capitol. One man, Governor Letcher of, of uh, Lexington, Virginia, who knew Jackson and believed in him, was the only one against the whole cabal that wanted to get rid of Jackson. That's been done in other times in armies since the Civil War and was done before the Civil War. Washington faced some of those kind of things, too. And Washington had the discipline some officers and relieve them from command. I submit, gentlemen, those are fair answers to the conditions under which the man had to work and what was handed him, not chosen by him. Thank you. All right, Lloyd, have you anything on that briefly? You just want to leave the seven days till later? Well, you can bring in anything you want to, where it's wide open. No, I don't want to take any time at all because, uh... Come over uh, here. Uh, no, what? Can you come over here? No, I, I, I think, uh, Ollie Felton was, um, rather easy on me. <laughs> he said Second Manassas was well done, Harper's Ferry, Stonewall was at his best, Sharpsburg excellent. He said McLaws did not march to Harper's Ferry with Stonewall. Well, um, 
he didn't march with him shoulder to shoulder, no. Neither did, neither did some of the other troops. Uh, Stonewall Jackson moved our, off west in a feint and also to take Martinsburg. But in the meantime, um, part of his command moved south because they'd be on the north side of the uh, Potomac River, and that was McLaws. And I think he's justified in saying that I left the impression that McLaws marched with him and uh, be that minutiae or what it may, okay. But the other thing that Ollie said, and the only thing that I want to take issue on, which is also minutia, <coughs> he thought Jackson on the west of Bolivar Heights investing Harper's Ferry should be held responsible for letting this cavalry, Union cavalry, escape. But the record shows that they crossed the river at Harper's Ferry. Stonewall Jackson's men were not in the town. They were surrounding the town a good distance out because the Federals had rifle pits. They had fortifications around there, outside the city itself, the town itself. And obviously, he didn't want to do anything till all men were in position and the Federals were hemmed in, and the next day, they saw they were hemmed in and put up the white flag of surrender. But the night before, when this cavalry got out, the left of Stonewall Jackson's men on the west of Harper's Ferry couldn't do as much with the river between them as dear old Lafayette McLaws could on the north with no river between him. And the evidence of many eyewitnesses were that the cavalry passed within hearing distance of some of the uh, pickets of McLaws. So I think Lafayette... Uh, uh, you, you and I got a battle on him, kid. <laughs> There's a good future subject around there, but just a second. Uh, uh, Ken, have you anything to add here? You've been left pretty well uh, uh, after your excellent job in the seven days. You, uh... Well, I certainly would. As a matter of fact, I first want to apologize for taking so long there in the swamp. But uh, it is an interesting, it is an interesting part of the war, gentlemen, and. I could go on, I'm sure most of us could go on for two or three hours in seven days. I feel that uh, one of the things I would like to have brought up, and I failed to, was the fact uh, that uh, at Fraser's Farm on the 30th, Glendale, some, sometimes called, Lee had an opportunity to really destroy McClellan. He had his ideal opportunity. And Jackson, for some unknown reason, and I say some unknown because when you think of uh, White Oak Swamp and all that was there, was there two years ago, and it was a lot worse, a hell of a lot worse in 1862. When you stop to think that Jackson stood there all day, did not get into the fight really at all, was held off by a relatively small force, it seems to me that while I admire the man greatly, I think he committed an error there, which it's hard for, for me at least, to condone. I think that he could have gone over at Bruxton's Ford. He, he didn't reconnoiter that sufficiently well. And it just seemed to me that he had, had a, a lethargy. He was in a state of mind where he just didn't have his full energy, his full skill, and his great abilities at the time when it would have been most important to the Confederacy and to Lee. I like to leave that point wide open for you, gentlemen, because some of you on Donna will disagree. Another thing, too, I think that <clears throat> Lee, as I indicated in one of my reasons why I thought Jackson had not been 
uh, could not be held completely to blame for the ill timing at Mechanicsville and Beaver Dam and later at Ellerson and so on. It seems to me that, um, that while Jackson had his reputation and Lee as a great commander wanted to make the most of that. He wanted to put him in the position where he was really going to do the most good with his 18,000 odd men from the valley. But it seems to me that if he had put in some man who was more, had been in the, the area of fighting there on the peninsula, who had worked with the other division commanders and put him in the pivotal position and moved Jackson's troops more over to the center, possibly along where Longstreet was or A.P. Hill, he wouldn't have had, Jackson wouldn't have had to march so far after taking this well, it would be approximately, I'm making a fast guess, but I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of about 110 miles from the time he started out. You might check me on that, Monroe, but it's about 110 miles from Brown's Gap to, uh, to Ashland. All of that. All of that. He was on the side road a couple of times. Well, that's right. He was on the side road. So you see what Lee did. He took the man who was, whose troops were most exhausted, whose troops were, had been fighting this, this difficult road uh, conditions, and put him in the position where the whole army turned on his and and really was developing on his timing and his timing obviously was off jackson i think would have rather had it otherwise i think he realized what he's up against but uh, pete i'd like to leave that open to a discussion because those are just a few of the thoughts that i have and i thank you very much again for an opportunity to talk one minute and uh, about for ollie here to reply to some of these Okay. Gentlemen, all Mr. Cockrell didn't tell you was how many votes Garnett got. However, there's nothing that I've found in the pages of history that set Garnett down as a climber or a man that would have made any trouble for Jackson any more than he did for Lee or any of his superiors in the following years in the war. Ashby where the main controversy, Ashby wanted his finger in and to have control of the cavalry as a whole. Now, where we couldn't find any cavalry ready to go out of Winchester, and this fellow had to be under the order of his immediate superior, let's assume they had all been Ashby's men and asked to move. I think maybe we'd have got action in less than two hours. Now, to Mr. Miller on McLaws. Mr. Felton, before you start, Dad, I'd like to ask this question. Was there any evidence at that time or through then of a whispering campaign against Jackson? If not, let's not have one now. Kindly speak up with it, please. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Smith. <laughs> ah, to Mr. Miller. <laughs> ah, when I am. Uh, McLaws marching with Jackson. My reference was to his leaving Harper's Ferry and going to the field of Sharpsburg with him. He was considerably late. His troops went to the top of the hill at Harper's Ferry and they stopped and held some sort of a council, most of it grumbling because they got into the town too late to get any of the spoils. Now, in regard to the uh, Federal Cavalry getting away, as we know, the Federals had broken through Crampton's Gap. McLaws took everything except possibly a company off of the mountain. There were two guns only on top of Maryland Heights and maybe a company of men spread around. 
at the point where I think Jackson could have halted the uh, escape was right up where Friend's Furnace was. The river is somewhat narrow there, right above where the old dam was and still is. It's within very easy rifle range, certainly within earshot. But the story there that you generally don't hear, it's one of the trivia, as Mr. Miller would say, Atop the hill, up toward Bolivar at that time, there was a large house tenanted by a group of very friendly young ladies. In those days, as at the present, by a group of very friendly young ladies. In those days, as at the present, they could put the house out of bounds. The girls, know, though, knew no bounds and came down to the wreckage of the old furnace where Massey had his cavalry camp. And there was some sort of entertainment there on the jangle and clank of the whole 1300 leaving to the north went unheard being a little more stern and putting an alert guard there, it's doubtful if they'd all have gotten away. Uh, I believe that's it. We have even a little sex. All right, uh, George Lilly. Well, I came here prepared to see Jackson torn to bits because uh, I've covered the seven days three times when we went to Richmond. Every time I got to the White Oak Swamp, I got madder. In fact, I sat there grapevine bridge and, and practically boiled over until Ben Norwood started to roar at me and I calmed down a little bit. But it seems to me none of you three gentlemen who spoke before Ollie Felton brought up what I think is the main point and that's what makes a good general. It seems to me what makes a good general is the ability to plan a campaign and plan a battle and plan them and use the material and the men that you've got to their limitations. And Ollie Felton sat there and told us how wonderful all these subordinates that were stood there and how wonderful all these subordinates of Jackson's were. And it seems to me that it ought to be considered that Jackson's ability lay not in his using his men to part of their ability, but using them to the limit of their ability and in knowing how far each one could go and how well they could do with the abilities they had. And I don't think it demonstrates so much the ability of the individuals as Jackson's ability to get out of those individuals all that they had, including the materials. I remember Jackson never left a gun on a battlefield. And uh, uh, it seems to me that uh, that's a very unjust criticism of Jackson. It seems to me it only points out how good he was. And I hate to see it because I'd like to see him torn to pieces myself. I'm still mad over Grapevine Bridge. Well, don't some of those points refer to Lee, though? Maybe Lee didn't use his men, including Jackson, as well as he might have. All right, uh, Dave Gilhoff. I'm going to get down to the swamp with Ken McIntyre. Okay. Uh, Jackson was brilliant. <coughs> what about a man Let's who... Stick with Jackson. <laughs> what about a man who never uses pepper on his food because it gives him a pain in the leg? Let's go about Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> I give you twenty-five dollars out of my pocket right now. <laughs> 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 
Go to hell with him. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put the money on the table right now. There's the money, gentlemen. What about the story that he was so anxious about his wagon because they were loaded with lemons and he was a sucker for a lemon? <laughs> 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 Did anyone pick up the 25? <laughs> Would anyone like to, to bring up that point? Get this $25. All right. They court marshaled Fitz John Porter. Cashiered him because he was a little bit slow at second Manassas. Seems to me that Jackson and Wendell Swamp had a greater opportunity than Pope had than Fitz uh, uh, John Porter had at second Manassas. He had practically the opportunity there of winning the Civil War. He across the Wendell Swamp, wiped out the, the few troops that uh, Franklin had there on the other side of the, of the swamp, and got into the Battle of Fraser's Meadow, and then questioned. The Blanton's army would have been torn into two. Never would have gotten to Melbourne Hill. And the result, of course, is problematic. Whether, whether the Union would have uh, given up the fight, the Blanton's army could have destroyed or not is another question. I want to read you what one of uh, Jackson's best friends says about it at that moment. Douglas Southall Freeman and these lieutenants. Incredibly, almost mysteriously, and for the first time in his martial career, Jackson put the alert, vigorous Jackson of the early morning grew weary, taciturn, and drowsy. He was stupefied. And then on the other side, the General Franklin after the battle, who was uh, on the other side of the curtain. We should have been de defeated that day had Jackson done what his great reputation seems to make it imperative he should have done. That's the battle of leadership. Uh, in, uh, in Long's memoirs, he blames the fact that, uh, blames Jackson's slowness that day and his stupefaction on the fact that he'd been allowed to sleep too long. But uh, I think it's Henderson that answers that argument by saying that uh, uh, he didn't sleep any longer that day than he had all during the Valley campaign. He was notorious for sleeping about four hours a night. He could sleep five minutes in the middle of a battle. And Long doesn't see that that, that criticism is valid. Then another, here's another comment by one of his best friends. Here's, here's one of the uh, Confederacy's most, uh, most, uh, and most uh, cultivated, most penetrating writers, Pitt Taylor, brother-in-law of Jeff Davis. So Jackson's ambition was all-absorbing. He fought it in prayer. We had much praying at headquarters and large reliance on special audiences, but none were vouchsafed by pillar of plotter fire to supplement our ignorance. So we blundered on like people Trying to, read, trying to read without knowledge of their letters. From Cold Harbor to Malvern Hill, there was nothing but a series of blunders, one after another, and all huge. The Confederate commanders knew no more about the topography of the country than they did about Africa, although the whole district was in a day's march of Richmond. Now, uh, comparing this John Porter, Jackson, I think the difference is the Pope had to have a scapegoat and lead it back that way. <coughs> Uh, aren't we forgetting uh, that perhaps General Lee, again, was responsible for this uh, Peninsula campaign? Shouldn't he have pushed Jackson harder? Uh, Elmer has that point here first, second Monroe. The point that I wanted to raise is in part connected with some of the things said, but I think it helps point out some of the, uh, perhaps some of the deficiencies of Jackson. 
Ken McIntyre posed a question which I think, if answered, will enable us to see some of the uh, qualities that I have in mind. He asked, what would have happened if uh, Jackson had survived to participate in what Ken calls Second Cold Harbor, which is the one <coughs> known as Cold Harbor. That was positional warfare. I don't think Jackson was at his best in positional warfare. In warfare movement, he was a great general. But whenever, uh, it seemed to me, uh, perhaps I'm overstating uh, the matter, wherever uh, there was a fixed position at stake, Jackson did not do as well as when he as in the valley, when he had movement or other things. I think that was one of his defects. It, it perhaps connected with his lethargy, with a, a, a certain kind of inability to stay put and give battle. It, it, it requires much broader scope, I think, than uh, some of the generals who, like Grant, who was at his best in fixed battle, or some of the others like that. I, uh, I don't think Jackson was that kind of a general, so that if he had survived, Ken, I think, to Cold Harbor, he wouldn't have done any better than the Confederates did do at Cold Harbor in the end, if it would have been the beginning of the end of the war. Uh, I think Monroe uh, pointed to something that I sort of had a suspicion of, Bob Jackson, since uh, the few books that I've read about him. And that is that uh, he treated his, both his officers and his men pretty much like the school teacher that he was. <laughs> and when it came to making examples, he did use some of the vindictiveness, I think, that a school teacher has uh, <laughs> been known to you. <laughs> what are teachers in the audience there? <laughs> anyway, I think also this. Uh, first of all, I think this is true of Lee, uh, as well as uh, Jackson, and some of the other great uh, Confederate leaders. Uh, I don't think, uh, although they had ability, there were probably better generals than the, some of those we had on the uh, northern uh, side. Uh, it was, I think, more the mistakes of the northern generals and the strategy and the ability of the southern generals that made these southern generals the great generals that they were. But here is something that I, I think Jackson lacked. Monroe, have you an answer? I'd like to answer two questions. <clears throat> Jackson had milk of human kindness when you delivered the merchandise. When you failed to deliver, you weren't worth a damn. He had human kindness when he left his own command and was promoted to major general and was sent to, uh, to, uh, Harpers, uh, to uh, Winchester. He broke into tears according to uh, a half a dozen records. You find it in the Southern Historical Society papers a number of times. I'm speaking of that episode. You find also that he broke down when uh, went up to Cedar, uh, Cedar, uh, Cedar Run, Cedar Mountain, when he saw his own old brigade all together in front of him. Those are the only two incidents, however, that I know of. Now, turning to the gentleman who asked the question over here just now about what is a great general, uh, I'd like for him to ponder this, what is a great general. I'd like to answer that. And I quote from Lord Wolseley, who was about as good as it was those days. The definition of a great commander runs like this. The power, the instinct, the inspiration, the divine, the condition, and purposes of your enemy. 
two, the genius in that in strategy instantly devises the combinations most likely to defeat those purposes. The third, the physical and moral courage, the absolute self-reliance that takes the risk of decision and the skill that promptly and properly delivers the blow that shatters the hostile plans. So managing his own forces, even though even when small, as to have the greater number at the point of attack. Well, the hell, Forrest taught them all that about being their fustes. There's no use arguing about that one. <laughs> the, cold, the cool judgment that is unshaken by the clash and the clamor of emergencies. And that's a lot of these ifs that we look back upon and talk about. And last but not least, <clears throat> the precision, the, the uh, caution that cares for the lines, for the lives and well-being of the private soldiers, and the personal magnetism that rouses the enthusiasm and, and affection that makes the commander's presence on the battlefield the incentive to all that human beings can dare and the unquestioned hope and sure promise of victory. Now, you've got to have some uh, standard by which you measure any type of mind or any type in an industrial organization or otherwise. These are the ones that Wolseley laid down as what makes a great commander. At this point, the master tape ran out. Thus ends the 137th meeting of the Civil War Roundtable. Thank you.